The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. You are a visionary. You have a vision. You just need to create it and bring it to life. Welcome to Visionary Leader Extraordinary Life with your host, Kate Ebner. Our program will be an hour of inspiration from leaders who are making their visions happen and will set you on the path to having a big impact through your leadership and the life you really want. Now here's your host, Kate Ebner. Welcome to Visionary Leader Extraordinary Life. I'm your host, Kate Ebner, and today we're going to turn conventional wisdom on its side. My guest is blogger author, computer scientist, and professor, Cal Newport. Cal's most recent book, So Good They Can't Ignore You, is the result of his interest in why some people create successful, enjoyable, and meaningful lives, while so many others do not. Today, Cal's teaching computer computer science at Georgetown University, but his blog, Study Hacks, has 100,000 followers, and his exploration of the quest for work you love has yielded surprising insights that have drawn the attention of the Washington Post, the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, Fast Company Magazine, and many other um, media venues. Cal, welcome to today's show. Thank you for having me. Great. Well, Cal, I'm really happy to have you here. I, I have enjoyed your book very much. And um, as I was telling you, I've already begun to pass it out. I think it's a tremendous resource for people. I wanted to just begin today with uh, having you tell a little bit about your own story. Um, please tell our listeners about you and how you came to chronicle this topic of finding meaningful work. Right. Well, I'm currently a professor, but I haven't been a professor for long. And this book actually came out of the transition period that led me from grad student life and into the sort of professor life. That's a a pretty rocky and scary career transition for anyone because it's uncertain and it seems like you're making a lot of big decisions. So when I faced it, I realized that this was the time in my life, if there was ever a time, that I needed an answer to the question of what do people do to build careers they love? I figured this is when those, uh, the, that information was going to make a difference, and that's what started me on the quest that eventually led to a book and, and my writing on the topic. Well, I think that's a, you know, it's a question that's on so many people's minds, you know, how do I find work I love? You know, I, who am I actually? And and what should I be doing with my life? And, you know, I know as a leadership coach that people are asking themselves this question at not only when they're first starting out, but actually all through their careers and even in in the the second half of life, um, professionally and personally. So it's such a big question. Um, And, you know, one of the things that really drew me initially to your work was this idea that you're kind of turning on its head, the idea that following your passion is not necessarily the way to go. So tell us, what's the passion hypothesis and what's wrong with it? Yeah, the passion hypothesis is that that fabled advice, follow your passion. And the hypothesis there, implicit in that advice, is that we all have pre-existing passions and we just have to identify them. And once we identify them, if we match them to our work, 
we'll end up engaged and satisfied in, in our working life. And that's sort of the dominant idea in American, at least, career thinking. Now, when I looked into this question to try to answer, you know, my own personal quest for figuring out my career, I found we really don't have a lot of evidence that such a simplistic approach actually works consistently. And if anything, the idea that we all have pre-existing passions and we should just find them and follow them can end up putting people worse off than if they hadn't followed that advice altogether. Well, you know, it is actually the the advice that we give, and you know, even my my sixteen year old son recently was asked by an adult, you know, well, what are you passionate about? What are you going to be when you grow up? And you know, I think he was just dumbfounded, you know, frankly. <laughs> and I was watching him, thinking, is he really supposed to know that? You know, but t- tell me, you know, like what we've seemed to have fallen into the idea that we're supposed to know what we're passionate about and be able to uh, kind of follow the breadcrumbs forward from there. Uh, what do you, what do you, what's the alternative or, or, or before we even get there, could you just say more about why it's dangerous potentially to fall into this kind of a think thought? Right. I think we, we, we support this idea of following your passion. I think mainly because we're making a subtle sort of semantic mix up. So, when someone good-naturedly says, oh, yeah, definitely to a young person, you should follow your passion, what they really probably mean is, you know, you should follow the goal of ending up passionate about your work. Mm-hmm. But when people try to put that advice into practice, they take it as a strategy. And the strategy is very specific. It says identify a pre-existing passion and then match that to your work. And there's two problems with it. First of all, we don't have a lot of evidence that most people have pre-existing passions that are somehow relevant to a knowledge work economy. So for most people, that introspection is not going to come up with a clear answer of this is what I should do. And then the second issue here, and this is sometimes more surprising to people, we actually don't have a lot of evidence that simply matching your work to something that you like is a source of long-term engagement and satisfaction. We have decades of research on how people end up loving what they do for a living on satisfaction, on meaning, and it's way more complicated than simply, oh, that job matched something that you're interested in. So that advice, figure out what you're passionate about, go after it, all will be good, is way too simplistic and is drawing from implicit assumptions that for most people really just aren't true. So you're really saying that um, there's not necessarily a direct correlation between, oh, I love, you know, this topic or this this aspect of of life, and 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 therefore I would be happy pursuing a career in it. Yeah, that that's right. What what people do find, what psychologists and business management theorists find when they study satisfaction and engagement in work is that things like autonomy are very important. Things like having a sense of mastery and respect for what you do is important. Feeling like you have a sense of impact is really important. Certainly the people you work with plays a huge role. If you feel connected to your people and your customers, that plays a huge role in you loving your work. If you're avoiding sort of toxic bosses and toxic work relationships, that plays a a huge role in loving your work. So it's a a much more complicated tapestry than simply, I liked this, and now that I'm doing it for a job, I like what I do for a job. That's just way too simplistic. Well, you know, you write um, in the in your your book. You know, you, you write in so good they can't ignore you. That um, compelling careers often have complex origins that reject the simple idea that all you have to do is follow your passion. And and I think that's a really interesting idea. Com- com- compelling careers have complex origins quite often. Can you give us an example? Yeah, one of the examples that 
originally got me thinking about some of the contradictions surrounding this advice uh, was actually Steve Jobs. Mm-hmm. So, you know, he gave this commencement speech at Stanford, and that was in 2005. And he said in there somewhere, uh, you have to do what you love. If you haven't found it yet, keep looking, don't settle. Now, you can right. actually argue what he really meant there. But what is clear from the social media commentary that surrounded the speech is that most people thought that Steve Jobs was saying, follow your passion, that he was giving you permission that this is the right advice to have a life like Steve Jobs. But if you study Jobs' life, it's anything but so clear-cut. He stumbled into Apple Computer at a time where he was desperately seeking meaning in life, desperately seeking a philosophy and an understanding of why he was on earth. He was heavily studying Eastern mysticism. He had just got back from a mendicant's journey to India, was doing heavy Zen training, spending a lot of time at a local commune when he stumbled into the opportunity that became Apple Computer. So no one would look at his life in the period of the 70s leading up to Apple Computer and say, here is someone who had a clear vision of what he wanted to do and then went out and found a way to get it done. His path into Apple Computer, which became, of course, a huge source of passion and fulfillment for him, was complicated. And if you study people like Jobs, and this is what I did for my book, time and again you find similarly complicated origins. They did not just sit there one day and say, this is what I'm meant to do, and then go after it. The starts are often way more messy. I'm glad you used that phrase, this is what I'm meant to do. I I do hear many people waiting or searching for um, evidence, you know, a sign, anything that indicates what they're meant to do. Um, What's an alternative? We've got a couple minutes before we take a break, but I wonder, you know, what's an alternative to waiting for signs or, you know, identifying passions and then trying to drive forward from there? Well, a, a big picture observation that I think it can lead you towards a much better replacement strategy than follow your passion is that almost always the type of traits that end up making people love what they do for a living, almost always those traits are rare and they're valuable, right? They're, people aren't just handing these out at the local corner store. Your boss is not going to lavish them on you in your first months at a job. They're, they're rare and valuable. And that if you don't have rare and valuable skills to offer in return, you shouldn't expect them. So a mindset that says, let me focus first on becoming valuable, because that's going to actually give me some control and leverage in the market and help me take control of my career, that mindset almost always is going to lead you much more on a direct path towards an engaging, satisfying career than the sort of introspective, what am I meant for, navel-gazing type approach. Great. Uh, and that's super clear the way that you've just said that. You know, I think as, as I'm sort of, I'm sort of processing what you're saying and thinking about it, um, live with our listeners, I, I wanted to just clarify. Are you saying that, um, that the, that the introspective, what do I love question isn't all that helpful? And instead, there's another question we should be asking ourselves. And if so, what's that other question? I think that's that's a very good way of putting it. We should not be asking the what do I love, what am I meant to do question. We should be asking what am I good at, how can I get better? That's that's very clear. And I, as a coach, of course, we ask questions. So I like to figure out what is the question we should be asking. Um, we're going to take a break here in just a minute. And when we come back, Cal, I really want to dive into this alternative mindset, you know, the mind, not the passion mindset that we are um, acculturated to, but I think this 
alternative mindset that you're introducing to us. This is Kate Ebner. You're listening to Visionary Leader Extraordinary Life, and we'll be right back. What's going on behind the scenes with your favorite Voice America show or host? For the latest news, visit the iRadio blog at iradioblog.com. Do you want to take your organization to the next level? The Nebo Company develops leaders, teams, and organizations to achieve their highest potential. We provide executive and team coaching, leadership courses, mentor programs, and retreats tailored to the unique goals of your organization's leaders. With national reach, Nebo specializes in helping senior leaders to articulate a compelling vision, then develop the strategy, goals, and accountabilities that make the vision real. For more information, visit NeboCompany.com. Be sure to ask about our leadership and life curriculum. Again, that's NeboCompany.com. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You're listening to Visionary Leader Extraordinary Life with host Kate Ebner. We'd love to hear from you. Pick up your phone and call into 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. If you'd rather send an email, please send it to visionaryleader at nebocompany.com. Now, back to today's program. Welcome back. You're listening to Kate Ebner talking with Cal Newport today. Um, We are talking about his findings. Uh, His recent book, So Good They Can't Ignore You, debunks the long-held belief that follow your passion is good advice. Cal calls this book a scientist's take on self-help. And Cal, I'm definitely hearing the scientist in you so far already. Um, Before the break, we were talking a bit about... um, the dangerous nature of the advice, follow your passion and an alternative mindset that you can actually um, explore as, as a way forward. And so tell us about this. I know in the book you call this the craftsman mindset. What is that? Yeah, so if we imagine that follow your passion makes you constantly ask, what is this job offering me, right? Is this, is this offering me fulfillment? Is this what I'm looking for? We can think of that as a, a particular mindset call that the passion mindset. So what's the alternative? Well, the craftsman mindset was the alternative I propose. And what that does is simply flip that thinking. So you're no longer asking, what does this job offer me? You start asking, what am I offering this job? What is my value? You know, what, what am I offering that's going to give me control, that's going to give me the ability to make, you know, dictate the way my career goes forward? It's a different way of thinking about your work. But, you know, I found and, and other people I've talked to have found that it really just relieves a lot of stress because you're no longer asking these impossibly ambiguous existential questions such as what knowledge work field am I meant for? And you're instead asking something very concrete. Hey, what else can I do that's valuable here? How can I get better? And this kind of goes along with the idea of, of using your strengths or, or you know, sort of the, the things you're good at and that you enjoy doing and then asking, you know, where, it sounds like where can I contribute using these strengths and what, what, what can I learn about how to use them and develop um, these strengths even more. Um, and, you know, when I think about this, this advice, um, one of the things that occurs to me, Cal, is that it takes a little bit of pressure off of the job search, right? Because you're not necessarily having to look for the, 
the job that sets you on the path that's the right path for the rest of your life because it's meant to be, you're actually free of all of that. And now you can instead think more from a, you know, how do I, what can I contribute and what skills or what, what capacities can I develop through this opportunity? Am I catching it right? Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. In fact, I'm, I hypothesize, I don't know if this is true or not, I don't have data to support this, but I hypothesize that a, uh, a big part of the issue with my generation, which is Generation Y, failing to even leave the nest. So this sort of phenomenon of a sort of spectacularly large fraction of my peers, um, especially my younger peers that are still living at home after college. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of that comes from exactly the pressure of this mindset that we are the first generation, Generation Y is the first generation to be raised in an environment where follow your passion was the de facto career advice. This really got its start in the late 1980s. So we're the first generation to be immersed in that. And I, what happens is if, you, if you've lived your whole life being told this, then it's a paralyzing uh, challenge to then choose what job you want to do. And every job that is available, well, certainly is not matching the standard of this is my true calling, this is what I'm really meant to do, so it can make it very hard to even get started. And for those who do jump into the job market, even through this paralysis, it makes it very hard to advance because you're you're focusing too much on, do I love it here? And if I don't, maybe I should be doing something else. And that type of mindset is going to stop you from actually putting in the hard work of getting better at the job you currently have, which ultimately is what's going to lead you to love it. So uh, I think follow your passion is not just bad advice, but really can be pernicious. I mean, I think it can have a very damaging effect on people, especially young people, in trying to kick off their career and find meaning in it. Yes, I, I, I really agree with you. And, you know, the way you described that really, uh, I want to just uh, go back to it for a second. You know, that experience, I think we probably all have had it at some point in our lives where we're in a job thinking, do I love this? Am I meant for this? Is this, can I stand this? <laughs> and what 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 you're reminding me is that we get into a mindset of um, continuously assessing whether we're in the right place or not. And you, you just point out that that's real distracting. We're actually distracting ourselves from learning valuable skills that could be really helpful to us at some later point, if not even right now. Um, can you give an example maybe of, um, and you do this so well in your book, can you just give us an example of a, a passion-based um, ap- approach versus the craftsman mindset? Right. So, uh, you know, a passion-based approach to a career is sort of, what we've been talking about, where you would get from really internalizing the follow your passion mindset. So that means you're, you're, you're constantly assessing what am I passionate about? Am I passionate about this? And the idea is with that mindset that eventually you'll find the thing you are passionate about and then, then you'll love it and everything will be good. The craftsman mindset sees things in much more economic terms. It, it says, look, if I don't love what I'm doing right now, if, I, if there's things about my job I don't love, how can I, in essence, earn my way out of that? How can, mm-hmm. I, how can I earn more autonomy if, if you're feeling overwhelmed? How can I earn more impact if you feel like your, your work is not having impact on the world? And earning in this, in this mindset means how do I build up the skills that's going to allow me, in essence, the bargain for that? So it's a completely different way of seeing the world. It says, if I'm not happy about something in my job. The issue is not a matching problem. The issue is a value problem. I'm not valuable enough or good enough yet in my field to demand sort of better conditions, better traits 
you know, better types of projects, better autonomy. And so it puts your mindset on how do I get better, not on how do I find a better job. I, I like that. I mean, I, I think that, um, you know, what, what I used to see as an executive who was uh, bringing in many entry-level um, hires into the company in which I worked was that, um, you know, the opportunity so often is to learn not even just the job you you've agreed to, but how to be a professional, how to manage, how to lead, how to get results from others, um, how to accomplish certain outputs, how to write in the professional context, um, how to, um, you, you know, quite literally how to deliver whatever it is that is your responsibility, but to do it in a way that's distinctive. And I think that, that, that there's so many things we have the opportunity to learn um, that aren't defined by the job description or the, the title that we're carrying at that given moment. It's really uh, good advice, I think, to, to challenge people to um, look at their current opportunity and say, what's here that I can master, that I can learn, that's valuable to the, the person I'm, I want to become and the strengths I ultimately want to cultivate? And I wonder, you know, you... Um, you talk a bit about um, in in your book. You give us some really great examples of the craftsman mindset and um, this idea of practice, which we're kind of striking upon. Is you know this idea that you know you don't have to be good at everything right away, right? Once there's a skill you really want to develop, um, practicing. Can you talk a little bit about uh, the discipline, the power, the the importance of, of skill building and practice? I think this is a so one of the more powerful ideas that I, I sort of stumbled into when I was looking into this topic, which is they had this role that practice plays in the stories of people who end up really loving what, what they do for a living. And I think it's important to, to emphasize what you just said there, which is it's really not so much about what am I good at. You don't want to put too much focus on what am I already good at, especially early in your career, because People will often basically use that question as a substitute for what am I passionate about and treat it the same way. It's mm. really important to understand that skills, especially in a professional context, are, are developed through practice. And if you're new to the career space, you're not going to have many skills yet because you haven't done much knowledge work specific skill development. So having this practice mindset that I'm going to learn a skill in the same way that uh, I'm going to learn a new musical instrument is the right mindset. And I think that's, that's the right analogy. Uh, think about the difficulty of learning a new musical instrument where you're, you're constantly put in a situation where you're trying to do something you don't know how to do well yet. You're, you're trying to get your fingers to form the C chord on the guitar neck. Incredibly frustrating when you first do it, right? But you force yourself and it gets a little bit better, a little bit better, and then it's hard, but then after a few weeks you can play that C chord more clearly. That type of strain which performance psychologists describe as deliberate practice, is really something you should seek. So skill building in the, the, the context of work, especially knowledge work, is really this, this deliberate process of stretching yourself past where you're comfortable, being uncomfortable, remaining focused even when you want to check your email, you know, trying to write that better than, you know, would be easy to do. And coming back to that again and again, when you do that, that pushes forward skills and gives you leverage. But that mindset is actually foreign to a lot of people, especially if you're incredibly introspective on issues of, is this what I'm meant to do? Yeah, you know, you're right. It is It is kind of foreign to us. And, you know, I think there's a tendency we have to want to do sort of more of what we're already good at and be a little bit reluctant to get into 
the things that we maybe don't we, we don't look as good while we're doing or we don't do as well, uh, even if they have enormous potential uh, to to be places of great learning and contribution for us. And yeah, you write you write a little bit about um, you know your guitar example of you know sort of you as a guitar player um, starting out sort of simultaneously with one of the great. Uh, guitar players of our time, and the diff- you, you know you talk about the difference between your way of of approaching it and and his. Can you tell us just a little bit about that in the couple minutes before our break here? Yeah, so I, I uh, wanted to find out more about practice, so I, I went and spent some time with a young, sort of incredibly talented professional guitar player, and, and discovered that we both started playing guitar at the same point in our lives, which was right around junior high school, and. So I, ch- I checked our timelines and said, okay, well, where were we both by the time we, we turned 18? And by the time we turned 18, uh, I, I played in a high school band that wasn't particularly good. And I think we famously had played in like 17 you know, battle of the bands and had won none of them or something like that. By that same age, this other guitar player was actually performing professionally uh, touring the country. And so I wanted to understand, well, what was different? Well, I played a lot of guitar during those years. I played every day. I mean, I played a lot of guitar, a lot of performances, a lot of practicing. And I discovered the answer when I actually recently spent time with him and watched how he practiced. So I would play. I wanted to play songs I knew how to play. That was fun. When I watched him practice, it was painful to watch because he wasn't interested in playing what he knew how to play. He was interested in taking it and, when I was there, speeding it up just a little bit beyond where he was comfortable. And he could get maybe five lines into it before he'd make a mistake. Then he would start over and try again and start over and try again. Uh, And he would concentrate so hard while he was doing this that he was having trouble breathing. That's what I noticed, that he was breathing in these ragged gasps. And I realized, okay, that's the difference. He was practicing his guitar for those years Uh during junior high and high school, and I was playing the guitar. And it just goes to show that the amount of time you spend on something really has very little to do with whether or not you end up getting better. And that was kind of an eye-opening experience for me. Yeah, and and you think he was really willing to stretch the boundary and to, to go to the places of discomfort and it sounds like you were really working on getting good at what you knew how to do. Is is that right? Yeah, so I'm trying to move that analogy from – so what he did with the guitar, you know, you can do that, and I'm trying to do this in my own working life now. And it, it, this right. analogy has been really powerful to me because it means you go towards the work that, that that's not necessarily comfortable. It's not yeah. checking your email. It's not sort of responding to things that you have an answer for. It's the, I'm going to master this new piece of the research literature, which is what I've been working on today, for example. Mm-hmm. I, you know, I just text messaged my wife maybe an hour before that this is really hard. And, and it is, you know, it was very hard. It was trying to make sense, keep straight these, these papers and these, these foreign mathematical notations. Yeah. And I melted my mind doing it. But I'm getting way more out of those two hours than I would have gotten out of a whole day spent sort of answering emails and shuffling papers around. Thank you very much. I thank you for the personal example. We're going to take a break. You're listening to Visionary Leader Extraordinary Life. I'm Kate Ebner, and my guest, Cal Newport, is talking about how to be so good they can't ignore you. We'll be right back. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network live wherever you go on iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. Do you want to take your organization to the next level? 
The Nebo Company develops leaders, teams, and organizations to achieve their highest potential. We provide executive and team coaching, leadership courses, mentor programs, and retreats tailored to the unique goals of your organization's leaders. With national reach, Nebo specializes in helping senior leaders to articulate a compelling vision, then develop the strategy, goals, and accountabilities that make the vision real. For more information, visit NeboCompany.com. Be sure to ask about our leadership and life curriculum. Again, that's NeboCompany.com. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. You're listening to Visionary Leader Extraordinary Life with host Kate Ebner. We'd love to hear from you. Pick up your phone and call into 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. If you'd rather send an email, please send it to visionaryleader at nebocompany.com. Now, back to today's program. Welcome back. This is Kate Ebner. You're listening to Visionary Leader Extraordinary Life. Um, Cal Newport's perspective hopefully is giving you some new ways of thinking about your own path and how you approach it. We highly recommend Cal's book, So Good They Can't Ignore You. Um, it really does kind of bend your mind, but then it it also is, is, is a, I think, liberating set of ideas. And um, Cal, you know, you describe yourself as a, some of your... Um, your statements on the book cover as kind of a, taking a scientist's approach to self-help. And I do love that idea, that sort of um, look at the research, look at the evidence and debunk some of the common mythology that we uh, buy into without giving it much thought. Um, right before the break, we were talking about um, the craftsman mindset, this idea of mastering your craft. Feedback is such an important part of this mindset. And, you know, uh, all the examples that you write about, Cal, are people who not only um, welcome feedback, but they seek it and they want sort of the unvarnished feedback so that they can learn and get better. Do you want to comment on that? I found that to be a really uh, another compelling piece of, of the, the powerful point about practice. Yeah, so we know from the performance psychology research that part of this practice of deliberately stretching your skills absolutely requires pretty brutal feedback. I mean, you need to know exactly how good is what I did, where was it bad, so that you know where to apply your efforts to get better. When I began studying people who had built these passionate careers in the knowledge work sector, I saw they had naturally sort of integrated this type of feedback into their work process. So I, I write in the book, for example, about a, a television writer. And what was interesting about him is he sort of decided out of the blue after college, let me try this. It wasn't, I have a clear passion for this. He just said, I'm young. This is the only time I'm probably going to try this. Why don't I try this now? But what was interesting about him is that he was the national debate champion in college. At Dartmouth College, he was the national debate champion in his Mm -hmm. final year. So he had... um, an expert level understanding of how you train and get better at something because that's all debate is. You know, <laughs> I have to master something better than other people master it. So he brought this mindset over to, to television writing. And basically what he did is he, he, over a period of a year, was able to get maybe three or four projects at a time going concurrently. Now, these were all spec, right? No one was paying him to do this. And he built up this sort of stable of we call mentors or collaborators that were put in the positions where they would give him brutal feedback 
on those scripts. Mm-hmm. So he was writing mm-hmm. a huge amount, which was very hard for him. Um, mm-hmm. You know, he was getting home from his job at eight and then writing till three type situation. And he was getting this mm-hmm. brutal feedback. And he tells me now, when he looks back at it, he's so embarrassed about the quality of the stuff that he was sending out for people to read. But then again, by the second year, he was a staff writer on a TV show. And by the third year, he was the co-creator of a show with Michael Eisner. So uh, it worked. I've never seen someone have such a fast rise from zero to 60 in that industry. And he did it by stretching himself and brutally exposing himself to feedback just as a matter of habit. You know, I, I think that, you know, that reminds me actually for those listening of the show we did with Carol Dweck of Stanford University about um, the the fixed mindset you know, versus the growth mindset and, you know, the growth mindset welcomes feedback, right? The focus is getting better, not, not continuously demonstrating that you're already good. <laughs> so I, I, I love that story. And, and, you know, I want to go to, um, I, I think it's such a, a good title. Um, so good. They can't ignore you, right? That's really, um, uh, a piece of, of advice that you're giving even even the casual browser in the bookstore. But where does this come from, this idea of being so good they can't ignore you? And what does this have to do with um, – what does this have to do with work you love? Yes, the, the quote actually came from Steve Martin, uh, who in an interview with Charlie Rose – and that I was watching back in uh, 2007, 2008, and, you know, Charlie had asked him, well, what advice do you give? People probably come up to you a lot as aspiring entertainers and ask you for your advice. And Martin said, well, the advice I always give is never what they want to hear. You know, they want to hear about here's how you get an agent, here's how you network. But I always tell them, just be so good they can't ignore you. And I just think that if you do that, everything else good will happen in your career. And that was sort of a powerful idea when I when I first heard it and that's why I, I sort of redrug up that quote when I was trying to make sense of my research for this book because ultimately that's the mindset that is leading the people I studied to these passionate careers by becoming so good they can't ignore you that's putting your whole focus on building up valuable skills and then of course the whole framework I discovered was that you once you have these valuable skills you really take control over your career. And that's where you're able to steer it towards these wonderful, meaningful places. So really this idea just becomes so good they can't ignore you, I think is a fantastic replacement for the simplistic idea that you should just follow your passion. I think it's going to get you to the passion you're looking for a lot more consistently. Fantastic answer. Thank you. You know, there's another concept and I'm, um, I'm always looking to learn new vocabulary words for talking about these important ideas. You offer us one, you're, you're call, you call it career capital in which you're, you're asking us to think about building career capital. And by that, I think you mean rare and valuable skills that we can contribute to the working world. So the emphasis again is on building your skills so that you have career capital that you can um, use as a key currency for creating the work you love. Can you talk a little bit about this concept of career capital? Because I know that you have, you know, really given a lot of thought to this career capital theory of great work. Yeah. So, I mean, the whole approach here is sort of a a left brain (laughs) approach to understanding um, passion and career, which I think it's interesting, and just as a quick aside, I mean, we we recently have thought of this notion of how do you build a good working life as sort of a right brain thing. It's emotion. It's, you know, you're looking for your passion. But really, for most of human history, this has been a left brain thing. I mean, just read the Greek philosophers, right? I mean, these are incredibly rational and logical philosophies of how you build 
a good life. So I'm sort of returning us to our, our sort of philosophical roots here by getting more left-brained about these ideas. And career capital is a perfect example of this. Um, it's an analogy that helped me understand this transaction between skills and, and, and passion. And the way the analogy works is that as you build more rare and rare valuable skills, you can imagine that this sort of metaphorical career capital you have grows. And then you can imagine this is the capital that you invest for the type of traits that are going to lead you to love your job. So you're metaphorically investing career capital for more autonomy in your work. You're investing career capital for more time affluence or for a feeling of mastery. Um, you invest your career capital to actually be able to orient your career around a mission, right? And it turns out that these missions come from you need expertise and skills first. Um, so this economic terms is very left brain, but it made a lot of sense to me that you want a great career. Well, great careers have great traits. And great traits are valuable. So if you don't have something to offer in exchange for those valuable traits, you're not getting there. So the economic analogy, um, it works for me. It's a, it's a sort of left brain take on what's ultimately a sort of right brain type goal of feeling a passion. Yeah, you know, it is a left brain take and um, in sort of a right brain topic. So I, 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 love, I love it. And I think it gives us... Um, it gives us some structure in terms of our thinking about this. And I, I wonder, you know, um, if we go back to the craftsman mindset, you know, there's sometimes maybe that the craftsman mindset, this idea of really mastering the craft, you could be in a situation where you're, you really want to apply that approach, but is it ever possible that it wouldn't work? Yeah. You know, this is the important caveat. Uh, So, I'm often emphasizing that, you know, what you do really matters much less than you think. It's how you do it. But that doesn't mean to say that in all jobs and all fields, anyone can build a, a career they're passionate about if they just apply the craftsman mindset. So, you know, there's a couple simple heuristics that can help you figure out, am I in a situation where I can start cultivating passion or not? And the things that seem to matter is you have to find the work interesting, Now, that's a much lower threshold than determining whether this is your true calling or determining whether this is your passion. Just you finding it interesting is enough. Okay, so that's sort of the first hurdle you have to leap there. The second is you have to like the people that you work with. There's just a lot of research on this, and I think intuitively we know that if if your boss is uh, toxic, if you have toxic coworkers, there's just no way that you're going to build happiness there no matter what else happens. So that matters. And then three, you have to – have a match between your your values and what the company does. So I I write in the book about someone who was a tax consultant and just really the idea of helping these major corporations uh, avoid taxes really went against his values as as a progressive. And so that just wasn't going to work. But if you can clear those three hurdles, it's interesting to you, you like the people, it's not against your values, then that's probably enough. And the craftsman mindset can be the foundation for passion. So it's not any job is the same, but it's more like there's many jobs that can work for you. And that's a that's a much better set of odds than there is a right job for you. Now start searching. Yeah, you know, I, I was fortunate a long time ago, Cal, when I was first starting to um, be looking for, for work, I had a wonderful mentor. And he said to me, um, almost out of the blue, he said to me, you know, you're going to have a minimum of seven 
meaningful jobs before you retire. So don't get too worried about what you do in your first few years. And at that time, and this was, I guess, the late 80s, um, nobody was talking about that. So in fact, it was still a time when we thought that we would get one job and the company would kind of shepherd us through the, you know, the next 30 years and pay for our, our master's degrees. And, you know, of course, that was all ending, actually, and, and mostly ended in the early 90s. But, but it was such a different mindset at the time than what anybody else was saying. And yet, I trusted him. And I think that when I look back on that advice, I think it was highly consistent with what you're saying. You know, the the goal is to learn, develop skills, and to really work on being a contribution with your life and with your effort rather than just trying to uh, get personal fulfillment through the workplace. So we're going to be taking another break here. And um, when we come back, Cal, I want to, I want to tap into maybe some advice you may have for those listening who want to explore how to, how to come from this other approach. So we're going to take a break now. We'll be right back. I'm talking to Cal Newport. This is Kate Ebner, and you're listening to Visionary Leader Extraordinary Life. Think you've seen everything there is to see in online television? Let us surprise you. Visit voiceamerica.tv today for sports, health, business, and more on demand 24-7. Do you want to take your organization to the next level? The Nebo Company develops leaders, teams, and organizations to achieve their highest potential. We provide executive and team coaching, leadership courses, mentor programs, and retreats tailored to the unique goals of your organization's leaders. With national reach, Nebo specializes in helping senior leaders to articulate a compelling vision, then develop the strategy, goals, and accountabilities that make the vision real. For more information, visit NeboCompany.com. Be sure to ask about our leadership and life curriculum. Again, that's NeboCompany.com. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. You're listening to Visionary Leader Extraordinary Life with host Kate Ebner. We'd love to hear from you. Pick up your phone and call into 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. If you'd rather send an email, please send it to visionaryleader at nebocompany.com. Now, back to today's program. Welcome back. This is Kate. I'm talking to Cal, and we are exploring how you can be so good they can't ignore you and what that approach, what that philosophy, what that concept could actually do for your perspective on how to find work you love. Um, Cal, I have a question for you. And as I've really been exploring your body of work thus far um, around this topic, I've been wondering, you know, you have, you seem to me to be somebody who has one of those complex, interesting, compelling careers. You know, you're an author, you're a blogger, you're a scientist, um, you're a professor. Um, what's your, what are you going for? How, what's your approach for yourself? Yes, yeah, so I, I've always sort of intuitively uh, followed what are now sort of the insights that are, that are in my book. I mean, I, mm-hmm. I didn't have the research back then, but I think I, I've always sort of intuitively followed some of those ideas. And in, in particular, you know, my strong memory of graduating college, for example, was this sense that the specific thing I did right out of college really wasn't that 
important and that I wasn't necessarily, you know, expecting to love every minute of what I did right out of college. And, and I certainly didn't spend any time that I can remember trying to be introspective about which job path, you know, am I meant to do. And I think I just, I chose, you know, the job I chose, I went to grad school is what I chose. I had some other options. And I, I remember that one of the main criteria for choosing grad school was a geographic preference for the East Coast, right? It was sort of a, a not an arbitrary choice, but pretty close to it. But mm-hmm. I did have a confidence that really it wasn't this choice, this matching between the job and me that mattered. It really was going to be what happened once I got there, um, how I, how valuable I could make myself. And that's really served me well. So I'm a living example of the philosophy that's in my book. The better I get at what I do, the more passion and love I have for my work. And, you know, I love what I do now more than I did five years ago and, and certainly more than I did, you know, five years before that. So the, so so really, I mean, I, I think this is an important point that you're making. You know, the better we get at, at our work, the more we like it. Yeah. I think of passion. Uh, the simple way to think of it is passion is the byproduct of getting better at something. Now, that the slightly more complicated answer is, well, because when you get better at something, you have more control over your career and you can steer it towards good directions. But I think the sort of simplification works. As you get better, for various reasons, your passion will grow. Kai, what do you say when your students flock you and you know throng around you and say, help, you know, where should I go? You know, I follow your blog, I read your book. What's the simple advice you give to um, people just starting out on their careers? Well, the the issues start before that. And one of the things that got me thinking about this topic was the number of students who are coming to me with major, college major choice issues, which is um, your major choice is sort of a stand-in for the same sort of what am I meant to do questions nowadays. Yeah. And and the students I was working with were really sweating. You know, well, what, what am I really meant to major in? And more importantly, what was happening, this was the problem, they would choose a major. It would get hard around their junior or senior year because upper-level classes are hard. They're harder than entry, the, the lower-level classes. So it's hard work, and hard work is not fun minute to minute, right? When you're doing a hard math problem set, that's not fun time. And what would happen is they would say, oh, this must not be my passion because I'm not feeling passionate right now, you know, hour <laughs> yeah. three into my, my, my uh, discrete <laughs> mathematics prompt set. And then they would switch their major. Uh-huh. And that's the, really my, my first exposure to how widespread the passion mindset is because that's the passion mindset at play there as well, right? Because this notion that there's some major that I'm, that's my passion and the others aren't. It's the same thing as saying there's some job that's my passion and some that aren't. So now when I talk to students, I say, don't sweat your major. Choose something that's interesting and hard. Do really well in it. Think of it as practice in getting better at cognitively demanding skills. Don't think of it as making some choice of what your future is going to be. Don't think of it as um, building up uh, the specific skills you're going to need in your career because you're ultimately starting from scratch after college. Um, See it as practice at doing hard things. And then when you get to your first job, choose something that's interesting and do it well. So I'm I'm always trying to steer the students away from – profundity in these choices and say the choices are really less important than you think, but I really want you to care a lot about how you actually approach the work you end up choosing what you, that you choose to do. Do people ever feel that they're risking, sort of risking an A that they need for their future by cho- making these harder choices? Well, you know, in some sense, I think you can end up better off with this type of mindset because part of the issue with um, 
the passion mindset is that the students that I was working with more and more were double and tripling majoring and adding on all these minors because they were terrified that they were going to miss the thing they were meant to do. Uh, and what happens is when you add two or three majors and some minors, well, it's almost impossible to do that work well. And the, the students that are happiest and sort of score the highest grades, and I wrote a whole book about how the very highest scoring students study, they tend to have one major, not too many other activities, and they just sort of have more than enough time to tackle and master that work. And, and those are probably some of the happiest students on campus. You know, Them and the frat guys that aren't going to class, the, the two happiest <laughs> groups of students on classes. But the former group gets uh, some more interesting job opportunities when they graduate. Good point. <laughs> um, well, you know, as we're as we're winding uh, down our time here together, you know, I wanted to I wanted to ask you a little bit more about this point about um, you know building up the building up career capital. Um, one thing I see is a, a need for people to be able to talk about what they're capable of. You know, so in other words, say you took a job and it wasn't necessarily a job you loved, but you developed um, writing and analytical skills. You developed um, sort of cool, cool under pressure, you know, who knows, some number of, of things. Um, and then it was time for you to move on to the next opportunity. You know, um, in that next round opportunity, people say, well, that job you did doesn't seem completely directly related to the one you're going for. Um, can you please explain how it's relevant? Um, I guess what I'm wonder what I'm wanting to ask you, Cal, is you know it seems like in the craft and mindset you you know what you wanted to learn and worked on, so you're able to actually convert you know your experiences into a, a meaningful offer, so to speak, to your next opportunity. Is that right? Is that what the purposefulness aspect does? Is that does it get easier to convey what your value is because you're making some conscious choices about what you're what you're how you're approaching learning? Yeah, I think so. I think when you're in the craftsman mindset, you're in a skill centric mindset. I mean, because the craftsman mindset forces you to do the assessment, not in my lovingness, but instead the assessment of what are the specific skills that I, I have, how good am I, and how am I getting better? So you have this sort of expert level awareness of what your value is to the job market because the craftsman mindset says it's that skill-based value that is your, your leverage. I mean, that's, that's your currency for, for building this, this passionate life. So it's a lot easier to make those transitions, it's also a lot easier to make decisions about transitions. When you're just thinking about passion, right? So you're, you're uh, maybe a, a software engineer and you're like, I don't know if I love this particular job. If you're just thinking about passion, you might see, for example, starting a photography company because you enjoy photography, similar to maybe going to a startup, because you're saying, yeah, these both are different. Maybe I'll love these different. If you're in the craftsman mindset, you're skill-centric. So you say, well, what skills do I have and which of these is going to leverage those skills and build on it? And all of a sudden you would see the photography idea is a disaster because hmm. you're throwing out all the capital you have and you're starting to build on skills that are very small. So it's going to be a very long time until you love what you do there, whereas the startup idea can transfer over a lot of the skills that you've specifically identified. So I think... Turning your attention from passion and towards this really specific kind of quantitative view of skills 
uh, time and again really simplifies all these other sorts of career conundrums that we otherwise face. It just gives you a very clear way of thinking about what you're doing, what else you can do, why this person should hire you, because it can be very clear, this is what I do that's rare and valuable. You need this. Here's why. Um, so it's, it's, it's kind of like an elixir in that sense that it solves lots of different problems once you adopt that mindset. Yes, I, I really understand that. And, you know, um, for those of you listening, I, I highly recommend um, this book that Cal's written. I think um, one of the things that you talk about, and we only have a couple minutes left, Cal, so we won't be able to go into this too much, but you talk a little, a little bit about the courage, what we call, what you call a courage culture, you know, which is really this um, idea that the only thing standing between, you know, us, you know, me and my dream job is taking a courageous step off the expected path. And, I, I'm struck by that because I, I do see, again, this mindset out there that people believe, like, I just have to be brave and go for it. And, you know, you write that that's well-intentioned, but it underplays the importance of having that career capital, right, that uh, skills and experiences that really back up your career aspirations so that sometimes people take sort of wild risks when they're ready. And I think your approach is one that advocates, you know, build the skills build the capacity and build the um, career capital so that when you do take that courageous step, you're in great shape to really make it happen. Um, do you want to just comment quickly on that idea of courage culture? Yes, that's what you find when you, especially if you look in the blogging world and in the sort of, uh, in some of the advice book world, you find this real emphasis on exactly that. Uh, how do we build up the courage to actually follow our dreams? And you know, there's a reason, right? That's that's very sort of emotionally satisfying. But you're absolutely right in what you point out, which is that if you're taking a career capital approach, your career might have big, bold moves, but they don't really require that much courage because you know that you have the skill. And you can be confident when you make these moves. Often there's people vying for your skills and you're choosing between the people vying for you. So I think it's a mistake to see the big, bold moves that people make in careers that they love and think that that's really just because they had the courage to do it. In some sense, if you're really nervous about something, that probably means you're not ready to do it yet. So I'm not a big believer that courage actually plays a really big role in building a compelling career. Yeah, well, you know, walk before you run. <laughs> another way of saying that, maybe. It's, it's great advice and uh, really uh, yet another wonderful point um, from Cal Newport. Cal, where can people go to follow you or learn more about you? Yeah, so you can uh, find out more about me at calnewport.com and you can find the latest book at Barnes & Nobles or Amazon. Thank you so much, Cal, and thank you for joining me today. It's just been an incredibly valuable conversation. I really appreciate your time and being on the show. Oh, thank you, Kate. I enjoyed it, too. Well, everyone, you've been listening to Visionary Leader Extraordinary Life, and I think um, Cal's perspective is one that I know I will be taking with me out into the work I do, and I hope you'll give it some thought, too. Thanks for joining us today. We sincerely hope you've enjoyed hearing from leaders who are using vision to create an inspiring future. Please join host Kate Ebner for another edition of Visionary Leader Extraordinary Life next Monday at 8 a.m. Pacific Time, 11 a.m. Eastern Time on Voice America Business Channel. Meanwhile, visit www.nebocompany.com for more tips on bringing your own vision to life. Do you want to take your organization to the next level? 
The Nebo Company develops leaders, teams, and organizations to achieve their highest potential. We provide executive and team coaching, leadership courses, mentor programs, and retreats tailored to the unique goals of your organization's leaders. With national reach, Nebo specializes in helping senior leaders to articulate a compelling vision, then develop the strategy, goals, and accountabilities that make the vision real. For more information, visit NeboCompany.com. Be sure to ask about our leadership and life curriculum. Again, that's NeboCompany.com. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit VoiceAmericaBusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit VoiceAmerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.